You're listening to Certified, Canada's class actions podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action, thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. And we have here with us today Mo Sidi from uh, Sotos LLP, and he's an associate there. We also have John Foreman, who is the founder of Foreman & Company in London, Ontario, and that's been going since March 2020. And Mo and John are going to be discussing the recent changes to Bill 161, especially the predominance and superiority aspects and uh, if anyone has heard Mo's opinions on this they know that he has a lot to say and I'm sure John has a lot to say as well so I'm looking forward to this. So uh, let's start with uh, you John tell tell us about your experience in your practice how how did you get into the class action space? Thanks uh, that's a, probably a good place to start uh, I was lucky in that the firm I was articling with uh, 20 years ago was involved in the Walkerton teenage water class action right uh, and that case had actually been filed on the Friday before my articles started uh, the following Monday. And so I walked right into this uh, exciting new file that was on the front page of every newspaper and uh, it had its complexities. We were part of a big team with other law firms and uh, I worked hard on that uh, case for for the bulk of my articles and it settled relatively early after that. It turned into a whole other um, news story with the very significant announcements around the settlement and, and so on. And before that, I'd taken class actions in law school, and I was lucky enough to be taught by Scott Ritchie of Siskins. Oh, fantastic. In the first ever class actions course taught in a Canadian law school. Uh, And so I had a little bit of education in it. I really liked the area. I thought it was impactful and interesting. And actually, I later taught that course at Western, and I think you'll be taking it over now, Suzanne. Uh, I will, yes. And this uh, this podcast is actually part of it. So that's that's the genesis of this podcast. Yeah. Well, that's great. And so... Um, after the Walkerton case settled, uh, my colleagues at the firm, I was hired back as an associate, and uh, we had this crazy idea that we would build a class actions practice there. And uh, so I dedicated myself to it from from that point forward. And um, 20 years later, uh, I've transitioned out of that firm into Foreman and Company with our team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, we have a, a, a very diverse practice. We cover uh, competition law, price-fixing cases, for example. Um, consumer protection law, securities law, uh, and a, a, a nice collection of other unique cases that cover other interesting subject matter. We've had uh, cases involving unpaid royalties in the music industry, for example, uh, payday loan cases, others in the sort of consumer finance category, uh, all very interesting stuff, things that I feel really strongly about and mm-hmm. that I feel lucky to prosecute. And this is all since March? Because <laughs> that's impressive. Uh, no, it's not all since March. It's uh, that's the twenty-year horizon rather than oh, the right, months-long okay. horizon. But uh, yeah, we've just taken on a new identity under uh, Foreman and Company in oh, the last okay. few months. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, but the entire our, our practice was formerly at Harrison Pensa for nineteen years, and we transitioned to this firm. Yes. Yeah. Great. And Mo, tell us about you. Hi, my uh, trajectory has been quite similar to. Uh, John's and uh, Suzanne knowing of 
your trajectory is mine is also similar mm -hmm. in the sense that I took class actions in law school with professors Janet Walker and Gary Watson mm -hmm. and I I liked the area and it was something that caught my attention and intrigued me but uh, it didn't become a passion until I started articling on the defense side and I article with the Attorney General at Crown Civil where they prosecute all kinds of civil actions including class actions mm -hmm. on behalf of the province and as an article student uh, and a summer student, obviously, I had the privilege and the opportunity to work with some of the best litigators, I'd say, in the country. And I was for further fortunate to be on one of the very few common issues class action trials uh, in the province that have happened in the province. So that experience, being on that trial and seeing how it works, uh, along with a couple of other appeals that I helped with during my articles that related to class actions, in a way sealed it for me. Mm -hmm. But as much as I enjoyed doing the defense work, I in a way knew that I would enjoy doing plaintiff side work uh, equally or even more. So when I was called to the bar, I looked for opportunities to do this kind of work. And these opportunities do not come by that easy mm -hmm. because there simply are not that many firms that do this kind of work. Uh, I was lucky. I got a, an opportunity to work with a great team here at Soto's Class Actions, and uh, that's where I've been ever since, uh, practicing on, on the plaintiff side. My class action practice is now uh, solely on the plaintiff side. I prosecute, like John, uh, a broad range of cases, but I can say most of my cases specialize in consumer cases. Uh, I, I, I understand price-fixing cases under that broader category as well, mm -hmm. uh, consumer protection cases. And uh, I also have on the side a couple of constitutional cases that I feel very passionate about, and, uh, I, and that's work that I find really meaningful, uh, just like any other thing that I do as a person advocating on behalf of a class of individuals who've been harmed by some conduct or another. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so maybe you should be the Jesus of class actions. Sorry, to, to, to put that in context, um, listeners, we just before we came on, we're, we're, we, we had a few issues with John's sound previously, and we were every time he came on, he sounded really echoey and boomy. And Mo said, you sound like the Jesus of class actions. And uh, we were wondering if that name was going to stick. <laughs> but then, you know, we probably thought we shouldn't use it because we get too much hate mail. So maybe we'll still get hate mail. Who knows? Let, let's be but, clear. I was the one who said, no, we can't say that. <laughs> John, forward them all to me. <laughs> I remain neutral on the subject, so um, I'm Switzerland. Okay, so let's talk about the, the changes brought about by Bill 161, which is what we're here for today. Um, let's start with you, Mo. What, what changes did you think were necessary uh, that were in the bill, and do you think they'll be effective? I think that's a very good question. But I have to, this is going to be, just to warn you, it's going to be a little long. Okay. But I think it's going to set the stage uh, for everything that I'm going to say and what I think about this bill. So uh, I want to point out that it's a good question, but I think I sense a little bit of a flawed premise there. Okay. And that, uh, to some extent, makes the question similar to uh, some arguments I've heard, mostly in favor of Bill 161, that, look, there are some good things in there, some bad things, so you don't agree with this. You, uh, you may agree with other things. Uh, things are necessary, and CERT is just one section in, I don't know, 40 sections in mm -hmm. the Class Proceedings uh, Act. So what's the big deal? 
to me, uh, the Class Proceedings Act is a special statute with one core provision, and that is uh, certification. And what I mean by that is you could probably delete any other section in this statute, and the regime would more or less work, maybe with some procedural hiccups, but it would work more or less the same. But if you delete a Section 5 on certification, you wouldn't have a regime under the statute. So that's what I mean by core provision for this act. And uh, if I'm to use an analogy, is it's almost like when you're given a car. Uh, the certification provision is similar to the powertrain of the car, the engine and the drivetrain that actually moves the car. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of other provisions in there which are really good, but they're, they're, they happen to be secondary. So with uh, Bill 161, what... And we'll get into the discussion, I know, further down the road. What it does is by undermining certification and by creating years potentially of uncertainty and litigation is at least a loss opportunity. Uh, And that being said, I mean, having set that stage, uh, there were things that everyone was asking for in the bar. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, predominance and uh, superiority tests are not what are not amongst those, mm-hmm. uh, but things like appeal directly to the court appeal. These were no-brainers, and they are in the statute, which is a good thing. Uh, many people ask for a no-cost regime that we'll be also talking about, including mm-hmm. the law commission. This didn't happen, so I think it's another loss opportunity. But overall, uh, what I'm seeing is they've delivered a car that has very sh- Things like very shiny door handles uh, being uh, a more straightforward appeal process, but doesn't have an engine for many Ontarians. Uh, so I think there were things that were necessary, uh, and some of them we see in the bill. We'll have to also consider this bill in its totality. Mm-hmm. Okay. John, let's hear from you. Okay, where do you begin? <laughs> um, I, I think that the stage that we're at, it's a good time to evaluate how our system functions and whether it needs updating or whether it needs enhancement, for example. Uh, And I thought, I I like Mo's choice of words, lost opportunity, because I thought this round of of amendments was truly a lost opportunity. I thought there were so many positive things that could have been done uh, to facilitate access for claimants in Ontario through class actions. Uh, and instead, we didn't really touch on many of those. And if anything, some of our um, some of our systems were pulled in the other direction. And so, like, I'll give you an example. Anybody who acts in a firm like ours, I'm sure most firms sees the same thing. We're constantly contacted by consumers, by complainants in some capacity, uh, and you have to sit with them and evaluate what are their options, and what does the legal system give them as some kind of uh, tool to try to solve their problems. And the reality is the legal system isn't there for 90% of those types of claims. And one of the only viable ways to tackle these kinds of problems might be through a class action if there's sufficient commonality, for example. Like if you can see that this is a widespread problem. Uh, But if you think about a consumer coming to you with a consumer complaint, like the idea of taking on a case and running it other than pro bono is a, a really difficult matter. Often they're sophisticated questions involved, so you need specialized advisors. The cost of the case will far uh, exceed whatever the consumer has at stake in most cases. 
And so there are really significant barriers in the system. And so if you sit and evaluate what are class actions supposed to do, there's supposed to be a solution for that uh, to some large or small degree, depending on the case. And I saw opportunities to make class actions a much more significant feature of our system in terms of providing deserved justice for people. And I'll give you examples. Like if you were to look at medical device cases or pharmaceutical cases or physical or sexual abuse cases, for example, these are traditionally difficult cases to prosecute. There are patterns where they could be successful and have been. Some firms have done extremely well uh, with long-standing uh, rates of success in those types of cases. But they're doing that in spite of the system in a lot of ways. And I thought it would be time for us to sit and say, how do we make those claims work more effectively? Because there can be no doubt the subject matter of them is important, that they're deserving of a trial, for example, on their merits so that we could determine uh, whether those claimants deserve relief or not. Uh, and instead, what we got were some, um, some unusual additions to the certification test. And Mo's absolutely right that it's Section 5 that is the engine of this entire system. And what we got out of this process was some additional requirements that were added there. Um, and so there's no question that we're now going to have uh, defendants bringing forward opportunities to raise defenses under those new requirements. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to litigate those things in order to define them appropriately, determine whether the bar is an inch high or higher than that. Um, certainly the messaging from the government through this process was, well, the some basis in fact standard is low and so this is not a significant change. It's a, if anything, it's an access to justice enhancements uh, tool that we're, we're trying to bring to the table here. Uh, but you know, my, my view is and, and was that if you're adding requirements to a process that's already uh, a difficult process to navigate, it, it, it's a pretty tall order to make it move faster or, or to make it move uh, to provide greater access, for example, to claimants. Mm -hmm. So you know, my, my view is it was a lost opportunity on the net uh, analysis. There were lots of things in it, like the shiny door handles that Mo has referenced that are, I think, uh, reasonable things to have added. Um, you know, uh, carriage uh, changes are, you know, that's a, a scourge in my view to the practice, and so it needed some attention, and I'm glad it got some. Um, you know, but other parts I thought were just redundant to extensive common law tests that are mm -hmm. out there already that we have to comply with and that are pretty significant uh, things for the plaintiff side to manage. So, I, you know, what I was hoping for out of it was, hey, let's sit and analyze where the system isn't serving people very well and figure out a way to make it serve them a little better. Uh, and instead, we got additions to the certification test that are going to add some layers to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that may or may not be significant. Um, I certainly didn't support adding requirements to the certification process, but uh, that's what we've got, and, and we'll see what it means mm -hmm. once we move forward. So procedurally then, uh, and Mo will get to you in, in a second, but procedurally, John, what would you have changed to enable those those types of class actions that you just mentioned, the institutional abuse and things like that, the consumer cases? What, what procedurally would you change in the statute to facilitate those? Well, it's not so much change as, as emphasis. And so okay. I'll, I'll give you an example. So Section 25 of the statute deals with individual issues. That, are, uh, that remain after common issues have been determined. And I've always maintained that Section 25 of the statute was something really significant that was really underused. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have thought there was a chance here to say, like I'll, I'll give you, a, I'll step back for a second and just say, if you were to look at the American system, the problem they had with their particular system, and there are enough differences in the US system that I don't expect we're going to see exactly what they've had down there. Um, 
but they have this whole um, view in their system that, for example, pharmaceutical cases, because there's a personal injury component to them, won't be easily certified. And that instead they do a mass tort scheme mm -hmm. where thousands of cases are managed, uh, you know, according to some sort of a case management system, and they'll start trying target cases in order to build benchmarking, and ultimately the thing will be pulled into some kind of a class action settlement after those test cases have been run and after the mass tort system has done its its job. Right. And so that's a sign that their class action system isn't functioning sufficiently in order to deal with those things. And the truth of the matter is there is there shouldn't be a bright line between class action and non-class action. You have legal problems that need solving. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what's the best procedure for the task? And I would have thought that we could acknowledge any 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 political viewpoint could say people get injured when um, medical devices fail on a widespread scale. Uh, people might suffer uh, physical injury or other side effect from a pharmaceutical product that um, creates a side effect that isn't properly disclosed or, or otherwise is contemplated in the release of the product. And so those are cases that should be analyzed and should be brought before the legal system and resolved. I would have thought there was a better way to try and stop this sort of division between thou shalt certify, thou shalt not certify, what you have is a significant legal problem uh, because the, the decision not to certify effectively means the case is at an end and there'll be no trial and there will be no determination because mm -hmm. the economics and the other problems mean that there is no access for those folks. And so I, I was hoping we would bring those things together a little better here and somebody might analyze these things and say, listen, if you have a legal problem and there's common elements to it but lots of individualized elements, aren't we smarter to acknowledge that and design a system that actually addresses that rather than act like those cases just don't have a home um, and that there isn't a place for them in the legal system? Hmm. And so my thought would have been that there could have been a better line drawn between what Section 25 is designed to do and what the certification test is designed to achieve. There's been some great writing on this. I mean, Chief Justice Winkler wrote on it in the Falakwa case, uh, the, the um, unpaid overtime mm -hmm. case, uh, where he addressed the power under Section 25, but it's it's largely said by the way because um, the case was otherwise certified, uh, but Chief Justice Winkler took the time to say, you know, by the way, even if I hadn't gone this route, there is Section 25 under the Class Proceedings Act, and here's the power that it provides. And I think he was calling several times through decisions that he'd written to the, to the bar to say, you have this power under Section 25, you should use it. Um, and so I, I felt like there was a, an opportunity there that, frankly, as I say, doesn't matter what your politics are. If you just are neutral about it and objective about it and you say there are problems out there, legal problems that need solving, let's figure out a way to solve them rather than allow politics to determine whether you believe in class actions or not. Hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, uh, we might touch on that again later. Let's get to you, Mo. What, what changes would you have wanted to see that were not made? So you mentioned uh, the no-cost rule earlier. Uh, you want to explain more a bit about that? Well, sure. I, in my practice, I do not really approach the cost regime from any dogmatic or ideological point of view. I try to approach it from a practical point of view. And my point of view is I have seen cases that, at least in my mind, which is the first lawyer maybe or the second lawyer who's looked at it, have a lot of merit because, for example, a business has engaged in clear misrepresentation to consumers. Uh, but we have not been able to advance those cases because the case is not big enough to basically warrant the 
economies of scale mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time burden the risk of costs that we currently have in Ontario that could amount to hundreds of thousands, if not at some points in to millions. That, be, that are the uh, numbers we've seen recently. So I do not want to exaggerate to say every case leads to a million dollar or uh, a cost worth to that scale, but costs are a real threat. And when you put that into the mix, it makes the case uh, just, uh, we, we, we all know there's always some risk of losing. It could look absolutely clear and meritorious to me, but a judge may disagree. And uh, because of that risk, I see those cases now being brought. And those people basically, as John was mentioning earlier, never really getting any kind of closure or any kind of relief. And that business that engaged in that conduct basically gets a, an advantage over businesses that did not engage in wrongdoing. Uh, and so it gains an unfair advantage in the market. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, costs as a barrier to access to justice in that sense, in the sense that there are cases that I know that cannot be brought. In some cases, I mean, you can you can say, why don't you bring it on on a pro bono basis? But, you know, not every case is involves constitutional rights uh, there are many cases of consumer wrong that are more or less of a consumer slash commercial nature. They're nevertheless important, but you may not be in a position to bring all of them on a pro bono basis. Uh, whereas there may be cases that engage constitutional human rights. And you say, even though the monetary aspect may not be that big, it's still important enough to warrant the risk. And you know at the back of your mind that the court is also mindful of that when considering costs. So that is where I come uh, to this debate on, not because I want plaintiffs to have it easier, but I, but because I see the cases that have merit, at least in my mind, not advancing. Mm. Okay. So is it fair to say then that Bill 161, or I mean, I suppose we've got to call it the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act from October 1st, although I'm kind of <laughs> reticent to use that name because it's a bit silly. Uh, but do you think the Bill 161 is a sort of mix of changes that no one really asked for that might not work and might make it actually worse for for plaintiffs and stuff that was already part of the common law or the case law and therefore perhaps weren't that necessary is there anything that doesn't fall into either one of those categories uh john i'll go to you on that that's a great question um number one i mean these are legislative amendments so you have to respect what they are Mm -hmm. um you know you can disagree with the politics, uh, but once an amendment is made, it's the law, and we all have to contend with with what it requires. Um, we'll have to, you know, the, the real challenge will be what do the changes to Section 5 bring? How are they interpreted? Certainly from, uh, like, a Hansard perspective, you know, the government was very clear that their objective was to make these cases uh, more accessible, make them move faster. We can disagree whether that's how the wording um, carries out, but um, that's certainly the way the government positioned this as it was delivered. Um, The other requirements, you know, there there is one requirement that does bother me a little bit, which is on settlement approval. Mm -hmm. Um, I always joked about this, that if you look at the settlement and fee approval requirements at common law, I think there are nine two nine part tests right. effectively so there's like a nine part test for summary or for uh, settlement approval and then another nine part test for uh, fee approval 
and those are not closed categories. Mm -hmm. So um, our courts have uh, not been shy about saying a particular issue emerged in a given case. And so here's another thing to think about on settlement approval or another factor to consider on fee approval. And so I thought there was a very robust system there. And you already have the idea that a, a case management judge has to approve these things. And certainly there's no uh, requirement. I, I know that it's common for settlements to be approved and very uncommon for them not to be. Uh, but there's pretty good reason for that, which is, um, you know, there's a nine-part test. And so there tended to be pretty good uh, records filed by plaintiff's lawyers, at least in my experience, explaining those things. Um, and so now the government's come along with, with some requirements that I thought went perhaps a little further even than the common law requirements did. And the only issue that I really took with it was the idea that in, in a lot of my cases, you could reach settlements with certain defendants ahead of others. And when you're bringing forward a settlement for approval, the court does want you to be candid about the things you considered in arriving at a settlement and about evaluation of strengths and weaknesses of the case. Mm -hmm strengths and weaknesses of the defendant's position. And it's always a touchy point when the plaintiff has reached a settlement with some but not all defendants. And our job is to thread the needle uh, to give the court sufficient information and confidence as to our thought process, the things we were giving respect to in the, in the evaluation of settlement prospects and negotiating settlement uh, outcomes, but without telling the non-settled defendants right. you know, where, where they need to go in the defense of the case. And uh, the government's changes on this round, I thought, were, um, were not respectful to that, that need. Uh, and ultimately, it's the interests of the class that we're protecting in the course of doing all of this. And so that was one area where I had some criticism of it, uh, because I thought it, you know, there, there's nobody has anything to hide in these situations, right? I mean, the approval judge will decline to approve if there's information missing, if there's something that they're not comfortable with. Um, you know, I, I have been involved in cases where there were questions and there was supplementary information to be filed in order to satisfy the justice that uh, a settlement should be approved. And so it was not an area where I thought there was a weakness. It was an area where I thought there was a strength. Um, and we've had this, uh, these requirements added. And if anything, they might put the plaintiff's lawyer in a position where you're, you've got these really high obligations for informational disclosure in a situation where you have to be careful about mm -hmm. what it is that you're revealing. And so... Um, that was an area where I thought, um, if you were if you were really intent to achieve the goal, which is making sure good settlements get approved and that they're well justified, you'd have done it differently than the government did here. Hmm. So you think it's going to discourage um, what they call icebreaker settlements uh, and things like that? Uh, what do you think? I, I'm not okay. sure about that. It, that oh, it okay. will discourage. It's not. It's it's what I'm saying is I think it puts the plaintiff in in a spot that's more difficult than is necessary and. Um, the reason it's difficult is that if you said the wrong thing, you could be prejudicing the class. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah. uh, Mo, any more thoughts on that point? I tend to agree with John. Uh, I mean, in general, my reaction to the uh, to the bill trying to enact the common law has nothing to do with the policy or even the politics or anything relating to class actions. I think. Uh, there is a risk that when you try to encapsulate the common law into a statute, uh, that the common law will need to move on and adapt itself to circumstances that had not arisen before mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Or the common law may simply move on and the statute is stuck there. And this is not something that I'm uh, just speculating. I mean, uh, 
anyone who's done anything with administrative law knows that the question of uh, standards of review has been uh, evolving over time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the BC statute that back in the 90s took the common law and made that a part of their statute in, on judicial reviews. And then I think in 2000, in the mid 2000s, the Supreme Court came out with Don, the Donsmuir case and just basically uh, created the two standards of review of reasonableness and correctness. That, that's not squarely related to class actions, but what happened is the BC statute that had the previous standards of review was in a way stuck. Right. So uh, there is that risk always of uh, doing that. They wanted to do it. Frankly, it doesn't, as John said, this is the democratic process and they make certain choices. I won't, we can flag that issue but you can't fault them that much for it if they thought it would help. But other things that are more essential in this act are things that call my attention more, like the things we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, then, let's get to the, the real... Uh, we're, <laughs> we're almost half an hour in. We haven't got to the preferable procedure part yet, which is where um, the rubber hits the road uh, in this episode. So can you, uh, Mo, can you explain to us, or for people who are not uh, up to date on this point. Can you explain to us what changes Bill 161 made to the certification test in Ontario? So in essence, uh, Bill 161, uh, well, just step back, one of the criteria, one of the parts of the test for certification is preferability. That those practicing in this area are familiar with, you have to show that a class action is the preferable procedure. Mm -hmm. That includes certain criteria, that uh, have been to some extent uh, put into legislation some in some places around the country, like BC and so forth, and a large part of it is also part of the common law. And uh, the preferable prefer procedure essentially asks what it asks, that whether the class action is preferable to uh, potentially other procedures to resolve the dispute at issue. Mm-hmm. What this bill did is it essentially copied and pasted from Rule 23 of the federal rules in the United States that has a so-called superiority and a predominance uh, requirement and uh, implanted them in uh, the certification test, the preferability part of it, and uh, made those mandatory requirements. Now we have this, these same considerations, for example, on the BC statute as considerations that the judge should consider, but they don't command the question of certification. What they did is they made it a mandatory requirement to meet those tests. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you're saying, and that's different from uh, the BC and the Alberta, um, you know, the, the list of criteria in their in their statutes, which are more sort of um, permissive. The court doesn't have to uh, you know, under Bill One Sixty One if if there is a preferable procedure, then the then, or if, the, if it does, uh, if the common issues don't predominate or if there's a superior uh, procedure, then the court has to deny certification. That's what you're saying. It's more mandatory under Bill 160. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's it. And I think the whole lot is going to be just these are two sentences, more or less, added to the test, which is uh, just to go back where we started, where I started, is a lot of people say, what's the big deal? It's just a couple sentences. But those big sentences, just to figure out what they mean. Uh, obviously, the statute has mandatory language on it, and the court uh, will eventually, hopefully after 
uh, some extensive litigation, which is what I think is going to happen, will tell us what those mean, those requirements means. But they are mandatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the superiority requirement. Uh, John, could you, uh, and this is where the, the class proceeding has to be uh, superior to any other means of, of resolving um, the issues relating to the class. I can't remember the exact language, but it has to yes. be a superior procedure essentially to another procedure so how will that affect uh, certification proceedings in Ontario so this one's interesting there, there's a Supreme Court case that I think is is going to be a, a major factor on this and that's the Fisher decision mm-hmm. uh, if you recall this yep. case it was a um, an action involving market timing and, and late trading that impacted the value of units in a mutual fund and um, or in a series of mutual funds and in that case the Ontario Securities Commission had taken action against some of the people that were involved and had actually done something that they didn't normally do which was require them to pay a substantial amount of money and to undertake a distribution directly to the uh, affected unit holders and some class action litigation followed and the thesis of the case was it's great that the OSC did what they did uh, but they didn't solve the entire problem and so that case sparked up a a tremendous battle on preferable procedure and mm-hmm. whether um, the OSC process was preferable, the already concluded OSC process was preferable to the class action. And um, at the first instance, the certification judge agreed that uh, the OSC process was preferable and dismissed the certification motion. Uh, it made its way through appeals, including the Ontario Court of Appeal. Chief Justice Winkler wrote the decision, found that the um, OSC process was not preferable and that uh, class members' rights would be uh, preferably vindicated through the class action. Supreme Court of Canada ultimately agreed and went, uh, I would argue, further even than Chief Justice Winkler did, citing some of the things we've talked about here. Um, in that case, the Supreme Court referenced the barrier, traditional barriers to access to justice for claimants in cases of that type and similar types. In, in the most... Um, significant way that I've seen in, in law. There are a few paragraphs in there referencing all of the barriers that ordinary claimants face, non-corporate claimants face mm-hmm. in the legal system. Um, and so that became part of the analysis of what's preferable uh, in the preferable procedure analysis. And so this question of superiority is an amped up version of preferability because preferability and superiority, they're now part of the same prong of the test, but mm-hmm. superiority is different than preferability. Preferability was interpreted to mean not necessarily superior. It would mean taking account of all things a preferable way of, of uh, resolving the, the common issues. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually think the Fisher case is a positive for plaintiffs here because that OSC process was a really robust regulatory scheme that achieved some pretty significant results. And if we're asking ourselves as a matter of law, what, how do we interpret what superiority means? You know, I don't know that there are many superior options in law to class actions in most cases, mm-hmm. um, because if you look at what it takes for a claimant to achieve access on their own in the legal system, uh, it's nearly impossible in any matter of significance, if there's going to be significant expert evidence or if there are complex legal issues. The idea that individual litigants will take on these cases unless they're anything other than uh, what is the uh, original Law Reform Commission called them, um, irrational zealots, I think, is what you'd have to be in order to take on a case like that, uh, or to have counsel that's willing to do it pro bono for decades. Um, You know, the reality is that when you're evaluating superiority, I don't know that there are many superior options out there. 
um, recent decision by Justice Bellobaba on um, a recall scheme mm. um, involving an automotive case, um, you know, might give you some indication that, um, you know, if there's a comprehensive recall of a product defect or something like that, that you might, that there may be a chance that there's a superiority uh, outcome that favors the defense there. But generally speaking, um, you know, we'll have to see what superiority means. My thinking is it can't mean that much um, more than what preferable has been interpreted to mean through several of the robust cases that have considered it like Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's what I'm seeing on uh, on superiority. The, um, the other thing I'll say is um, the uh, Uber case at the Springer to Canada gives you something to think about there as well because arbitration was the alternative in that case and there was this question about whether the arbitration clause was viable and the Supreme Court took the time to say some things about um, you know the default rights of every citizen in the country are to access our neutral legal system um, as opposed to a private arbitration scheme that may be gamed in the background because the defendant funds it or manages Mm. it in some material way Um, and so I think that kind of uh, thinking is also going to be part of the superiority uh, analysis as we move forward. So, I, you know, I'm referring to two Supreme Court cases that I think give us some strong indications that, um, you know, class actions are sort of designed to be a superior uh, method of attacking problems in the modern legal scheme. Um, and it'll take a pretty exceptional case not to be uh, where a class action isn't going to be superior. That's my initial thinking on it anyway. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you on the on the Fisher analysis. I mean, that was quite... You know, that the, the the proceeding there had been at the OSC had been finished and there was something solid to compare the class action to and the class members had got money in their pockets and even well, three hundred million dollars yeah, yeah so even very significant. even on that criterion uh, class action was the preferable procedure so I think uh, from my personal perspective I don't think superiority is going to do too much damage but let's talk to you Mo. what what do you think I tend to agree with both of you mm-hmm. I. I, superiority is not. We'll see how it goes uh, in terms of how the courts approach it. It hasn't given me as much uh, concern as pref- as the predominance test that we will talk about in terms mm-hmm. of the amount of uncertainty it creates. I think we do have a good body of law, and obviously the defendants are going to say, for example, here's I, I price fix this item and it costs all class members each a thousand dollars. And look, I've given them a $50 gift card. That's that's superior. Or, for example, just to use the more concrete example, the Volkswagen uh, defeat device uh, cheating scandal dieselgate that happened, I think, back in 2000, started in 2015, led hmm. to a lot of actions. And also at the same time, the Competition Bureau investigated it. And the Competition Bureau was able to levy some fines. I would assume in any scenario like that, most defendants return and point to the Competition Bureau and say, listen, the regulators stepped in. But the reality is the Competition Bureau, I think, came to some sort of a an agreed upon or settled fine that was in the millions, maybe five or eight. I don't exactly, I wrote about this a while ago, but I, it was not a large number in con- considering the, the, the scope of that case. And the class action ended up with uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions, and just given class members reparation and their damages, and sometimes, uh, if I'm not mistaken, basically buying back the vehicles and 
So the, this is going to be a battle where a defendant will point to a procedure like the Competition Bureau, but the fact that we have cases like uh, Fisher uh, will hopefully help in that analysis. Mm-hmm. So then tell us what you think of the predominance requirement. Predominance is, we don't know what it is, to be honest with you. Right. We know what what it is. We've seen the cases in the, in the U.S. where it's uh, operated to bar certification. Uh, in in theory, we know that it says common issues are supposed to predominate over individual issues, and that creates a significant amount of uncertainty as to what it is. And I'm, that's the part which probably will uh, in gen- will generate the most amount of litigation to understand what it is. But uh, it it essentially says that that the common issues should predominate over the individuals in the action. Now, what happens with the predominance test, and I think this also links uh, back to what John was earlier talking about in terms of Hansard and the government's repeated assertions that this is a bill aimed at improving access to justice and so on. Uh, I think one thing that one uh, needs to take into account is uh, how these tests came about and where they're situated in the U.S. context. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Kaladich has written on this, and she testified before the committee, uh, pointing them to these real these real differences in the sense that if Rule 23 has a predominance in the U.S., has a predominance and superiority requirement, at the same time, it has some safeguards mm. uh, in the sense that, for example, they have in the States, they have uh, single-issue class actions. Uh, which we don't have. Uh, for us, it's either class action or generally nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Or they have a mass tort system. I don't frankly know we even know. I don't know what a mass tort system is because I've never done one. I, I, I don't think we have a statute that regulates it. We've heard of it, that they do it south of the border, but they have a mechanism for it. We don't really have that alternative to, uh, to help us uh, enable people who, for example, have taken a pill that uh, gets them addicted to, uh, to, I don't know, to certain substances, and which is addictive, which is bad and harmful to them, and it was not disclosed to them. Examples like that abound, or they use a medical device that harms them. Mm-hmm. We don't have a system to uh, send them to. It's either the class action normally or the very unlikely... Uh, scenario of doing an individual action or a joiner, which are very limited in many cases. So I think whatever the court decides this test may, means, it has to be understood within that context and to take this government on its word that they actually wanted to enhance uh, access to justice through this, uh, through this bill. And uh, it would be very, in my, at least to my mind, it would be very hard to argue that access to justice means pe- barring people from even starting an action because uh, this test uh, renders their case not certifiable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's different ways of, of interpreting how the common issues might quote, predominate over the individual issues, right? So, you know, does it mean that you weigh them and there's more common, there's 12 common issues and two individual issues? Or, you know, does it mean that the common issues uh, decide most of the litigation and the individual issues are just sort of, you know, for a quantum of damages or something like that? I mean, John, what are your thoughts on how that might be interpreted? 
so that, that's great. That's exactly the way I was looking at it too. I mean, what if you have one, what if it's five legal questions and one of them's worth the weight of four, right. <laughs> for example? Yeah. Right, like if you think about the uh, cloud case where mm -hmm. ultimately determining whether the government had a duty of care was such a significant issue that it fed the entire rest of the case. And the, I thought the logic of the uh, Court of Appeal in cloud was, um, on that specific point, was a perfect analysis of, of what you need to do to solve a legal problem and how to do it efficiently, right? Which is if 60,000 claimants would independently have to prove a duty of care um, and knowing that in order to get themselves to a damages award, they'd have to cover all the other landscape that needs to be covered, why wouldn't you do them all the service of determining the duty, at least in one robust proceeding, mm -hmm. and give them that leg up and that advantage? And so that's an example where you know maybe there are 100 non-common issues and five common issues, but those five common issues are, are just worth so much that they predominate in some form of analysis. And so, mm. you know, I, that's one way I see it. The other thing is if you look at, again, how our Supreme Court has defined and interpreted what a common issue is, I mean, it's very wide scope for uh, how a common issue can be constructed and articulated so that it could be ruled on at trial. I've done two class action trials in my time, and I'm, you know, I've been amazed at how well the certified common issues in those cases served the case and served mm. the trial um, and the fact that you know when the trial judge is sitting and analyzing the case the broader the common issue can be applied the better because it gives the trial court the ability to apply the evidence that's actually received in the trial and to determine the case so you know there'll be this other question too about uh, I think actually is that there's a strength for the plaintiffs in this that our definition of what is a common issue is actually quite broad according to Supreme Court jurisprudence, right? Which is that yes, yeah. they don't have to be uh, identically, class members don't have to be identically situated vis-a-vis -vis that issue. They have to generally or directionally have a common interest in the determination of it. And so, you know, Mo's right that predominance is probably the heaviest uh, portion of this new bill uh, to be reckoned with in the future, and we'll see what it means. But um, yeah, my my overarching thinking on all of this is that legal problems need to get solved and our courts are interested in solving them uh, as are the parties that are involved so yes we have new requirements here but um, you know I'm pretty sure we'll hammer our way through these not without some difficulty I'm sure but uh, or some delay or lots of uncertainty as these things get defined yeah. um, but um, you know I see ways to handle uh, these things from the plaintiff's perspective so that uh, they aren't the worst things to have happened to us you know, it depends on the case as well. Like you've heard us each referring to pharmaceutical cases or medical device cases, and that's the same as the U.S. experience, which is if you have a personal injury component to class action litigation, you're getting into each human being's particular makeup and the questions about mm -hmm. whether something caused them physical harm or whether some other circumstance caused them physical harm. And so they're the, they're the zones where... Um, I think this kind of thing is going to be the most contentious, but mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of cases where it may not uh, may not be that significant. So possibly it's the, it's the uncertainty created by these new requirements that might cause the most uh, that, that might cause the most um, damage, I guess. In that you know it's going to take a while for them to get settled in the in the case law, and there's going to be a lot of sort of interlocutory stuff going on and and uh, people not sure if they should bring cases because they're not sure how that requirement is going to be interpreted uh i mean 
in terms of the actual uh, the way the judges interpret it, do you think they're going to be they're still I mean they still have to construe the statute generously they have to um, they have to apply the some basis in fact evidentiary standard. So do you think that will soften the impact of the changes? Uh, Mo, I'll ask you that. That's a very good question. And I mean, it's been portrayed, the, the Attorney General came up and read the script that said some based in fact is, uh, is going to ameliorate the impact of these. And frankly, I'm hoping he's right, but I don't think so. Okay. Uh, what happens is, uh, we'll see where the court goes. I don't think it will be some based in fact that justifies these amendments. And the reason for that uh, is uh, that some based in fact is to my mind, a red herring in this discussion, because we have some based in fact as an evidentiary requirement because we don't have pre-certification discovery. Mm -hmm. We don't have it because uh, because of what the certification test is. Uh, regardless of whether we have the hardest or the easiest certification test, as a matter of due process, you cannot raise the evidentiary burden much higher without, than it is without providing discovery before certification. Right. So I think just to say some based in fact is a justification that we have an easier test, so they have to make it harder. I don't think they really relate to each other. And there's another point in that respect that uh, the sort of evidence that, at least in my experience, and I'm keen to know what John thinks about this, is the sort of evidence that you usually lead to meet the some based in fact test for the preferability test is not that different What whatever the standard that, that applies. I mean... Regarding superiority, you generally would need, they, the defendant would lead evidence that, look, some regulator is looking at this. Uh, and predominance, I see it mostly as a uh, legal analysis. So, uh, I mean, whether it's balance of probabilities or some base, in fact, that part of the test is not usually where the evidentiary basis comes into the most, uh, it comes into its most prominence. Usually you have to have really some base in fact for the existence of the common issues or the commonality of the issues. So in general, I think that is not something that is going to, in practice, have a major impact. And related to that is another, again, I know that this is not exactly in response to your question, but uh, talking about the, pre the preferability analysis, there has been talk of unmanageable class actions as a reason why we need these tests. But manageability, as we all know, has been part of the preferability test for decades, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. It's part of the common law. You have to have a manageable process. So can't raise those prospects to say these tests are justified. By the same token, the fact that the evidentiary burden uh, is some based in fact because we don't have pre-certification discovery does not per se uh, help or hurt with these these tests. Okay, John, what do you think? Um, that's a good a good thought. I wondered. I was envisioning as we were contemplating these changes whether there would be occasion for defendants to throw everything at these these two. And I think certainly in the early going, strategically, they will want to test the bounds of these, and they'll want to set up these definitions so that they mean as much as they can. And that might mean you'll see some expert evidence filed in certain circumstances. Um, and so I did contemplate that we might see some hefty records, at least in the early going, uh, until these definitions are normalized through some appeal decisions or something. 
Um, so I saw the potential for, as you hinted to, uh, Suzanne, that you know, the problem when these things are in flux, it means cases aren't getting to discovery if they're to be certified. Mm -hmm. For example, there will be appeals and there will be big questions out there and maybe we're all the way to Ottawa on a handful of these, which um, wonderful experience if you can have it, but uh, it takes a long time, right? And it will delay an action considerable time. So um, in terms of the evidence, I think Mo's right. I, I hope that these things mean very little from the evidentiary perspective because I, I've always been of the view that the certification motion is well overblown already, mm. that uh, it has far outstripped what it was supposed to be from the framing of the original statute. We know it's a motion that was supposed to be filed within 90 days of the, the action being issued and and so on. And if you look at the complexity of the records that are out there now and the complexity of the expert evidence that comes in, you know, part of my contention to the government um, through the hearings that, that took place was you know, I, I'm afraid the government isn't appreciating how difficult it is to contest a certification motion from the claimant's perspective already because there was a lot of chatter among the government uh, representatives saying that it's easy to certify cases mm. in Ontario. And, um, you know, like I always say, you got to walk a mile in somebody's shoes before you pass judgment on them. And um, that was one where I thought that there was a, a, an insufficient appreciation of how the system actually functions because if you look at what's obvious certification motions routinely take five six seven eight days to mm -hmm. be argued um, they'll be heard years after the action is commenced there will be appeals that follow and this is this preliminary motion that's supposed to be heard within 90 days of the action uh, being filed as as the statute reads so you know that that was another directional concern i had with all this which is adding adding requirements to the certification test in a situation where i thought if anything there should be an emphasis that these things should be uh, simplified so that they get to the matter more more quickly. Um, so that's the concern. So in terms of evidence, I think Mo's right. Um, what evidence would there be on superiority? Well, there will be evidence of alternative processes, I guess. If there's an arbitration scheme because it's not a consumer case, for example, maybe there's evidence around that. Um, maybe there'll be other evidence that I haven't thought of when it comes to predominance. You know, maybe there will be evidence about the significance of the evidence associated with a particular issue or, or something. Hard to say. Mm -hmm. um, but if I were a defendant, I'd be looking at these strategically and saying, you know, uh, the first ones we argue after this thing comes into force, uh, we'll want the record to be strong on those points to make these things mean as much as we can make them mean. Mm -hmm. So then where does that leave the future of class actions in Ontario? Do you think... Do you think we'll see national class actions going to places like BC? And then where does that leave Ontario's specific class actions that can't be brought on a national basis? They're more localised. Mo, what do you think about that? I think in general, in recent years, what I've noticed is a move toward a more national mode of practice. Mm -hmm. Part of it, I think, is because of the penalising cost regime that already exists in Ontario. Obviously, we have very sophisticated courts and judges who have been dealing with issues for many years and uh, that helps with the process but the cost regime uh, has been a major consideration at least from my experience in folks starting to file elsewhere if you can file in federal court it's a matter that's within if it's within federal court jurisdiction they have a, a different cost regime which is much less penalizing so you see people filing there for example, price-fixing cases and so on, mm -hmm. moving toward BC where possible, especially since BC now has uh, the possibility of having a national opt-out 
uh, class. So I think moving forward, you'll see more of that. And I absolutely agree with you that those cases that fall squarely within uh, the jurisdiction of the province of Ontario, uh, for a variety of reasons, they, they're just simply not uh, cases that relate to other provinces. So they're on behalf of a class of Ontarians disputing or uh, trying to resolve a dispute relating to Ontario. And those cases are the ones that are going to suffer the most from the uncertainty created, uh, at least in the immediate future, until we find out more what this means. Mm-hmm. John, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you think the more localised actions could proceed as, quote, mass torts? Do you think they could, uh, if there's substantial damages amongst each claimant, do you think they could proceed individually and be sort of grouped together as they as they do in the US? Or do you think that's not really, that's not really an option? It's possible, but the, the, I mean, I have a bit of experience attempting that, and it is a very difficult thing getting instructions from you know separate parties that may have separate interests and so mm-hmm. on. And so, it, it's not the same sort of thing. It's a it's a different. Uh, it's an apple and an orange, to use that analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, one point I want to make is Mo makes good points about British Columbia and costs. I've done a whole bunch of empirical analysis on on trial practice, for example, in uh, class actions, Mm -hmm. and I've done that on a national scale. And I haven't updated that work um, recently beyond just adding another trial result when I see it somewhere, and so that we just keep this tabulated list of all the trials that have uh, happened in, in the class actions field in Canada. And it starts to illustrate some really interesting things, like the Quebec's the Quebec system, I think, if we were to do a proper empirical analysis of this, and I know we have some uh, some people that are focusing on this, you want to look at the attributes of the Quebec system and what it produces. Like, what's the bang for the justice dollar mm-hmm. um, in the Quebec system? And what's the equivalent in British Columbia and what's the equivalent in Ontario? And leave the politics aside, and I, I hate to keep using the word politics because I don't, I, 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 the idea that politics and justice mix makes me uncomfortable, but we all know that it does. Right. Um, but if you were to just do a pure empirical analysis, you would see automatically that the Quebec system, whatever its combination of attributes are, it produces a system that moves. It produces mm. a system that creates results, that has lots of trials. And of the trials that are uh, contested, it appears that the plaintiff wins about two-thirds of them. And so what that's telling you is the cases that get screened through and that make the distance to, to trial have good merit to them, at least. And I'm not saying there should be a merits analysis, but if you sit and look at it and say, what is this system producing? It's producing some pretty extraordinary results. In Ontario, we're about 50-50 in terms of the trials that have made their way uh, to a trial court and beyond, Mm. um, which is probably fine. I think the default assumption is that the legal system should be a 50-50 proposition for neutrality. Um, But way fewer trials make their way to the trial courts in Ontario in class actions than in in Quebec, for example. And we're a massive commercial jurisdiction in Ontario. We have such a sophisticated legal system here in terms of like our securities problems are concentrated here because of the TSX. Mm -hmm. Uh, The commercial list in Toronto is a very strong court where you have very serious commercial activity concentrated there. So you'd expect more activity, I think, just based on Ontario's demographics and its heft in the business side. Um, and so it, that tells you something, and that's I think that's costs is one of the factors there, um, and I think that our procedure is just very heavy, and mm-hmm. it's a it's a disincentive to actions getting tried. 
mm-hmm. out in British Columbia, um, pay attention out there because they've adapted their statute now, as Mo indicated, to go national. Um, that system is a no-cost system as a default, and so the parties bear their own costs. And so that's one factor that I think is salutary to access to justice. So I'd love for somebody to sit and say, what do you get out of the actions filed in British Columbia? How many of them get to trial? How many of them get resolved? Settlement results, all of it. Bring the whole thing together. Summary judgment or summary trial results. What do you get? And my prediction is that was Ontario was a ways behind the eight ball before we made these changes. Um, and so I'd like us to keep paying attention to that because if we're looking at amendments in the future at some point, my hope would be that we're doing it on a much more informed empirical analysis than was done this time around. That would be nice. <laughs> um, and I think you're right with the heaviness of the procedure, and I think that's not specific to class actions. So yes. um, anyway, great. Well, it's been a really, really good discussion, both of you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Do you have anything to add before we sign off? I have two very minor points, okay. Sam, if that's okay. And that's they relate to the things that we were just discussing. One is the proposition that individual actions will actually be the replacement for those, be the alternative for those Ontarians mm-hmm. whose claims don't proceed as a class action, either because the claims are never brought, given the rest, or because they get trapped in this new test. It just denies the fact that we've had a class proceedings regime for a quarter century now for a reason. Mm. That it, it, we've done individual uh, actions for hundreds of years, and there was a reason why we needed class actions. Just as, So it, notionally and theoretically, it's possible but whether it's going to happen for, I don't know, someone sitting in an institution with mental health issues or a senior in, in a home or any other uh, individual in a vulnerable state with respect to that particular claim that they have, uh, I don't think it's really a, a, a real alternative to those people. And the last point is I, I, I found the numbers that John was discussing very interesting. And the fact that we have 50% of the cases that have gone to trial in Ontario uh, going one way or another is a good testament because generally the, only the hardest cases go to trial. Uh, so the fact that the hardest cases go to trial and still 50% of them uh, succeed on their merits is, I think, a good testament to the efficacy of our system and the way that many of the cases that are brought. And I'm not denying that there may be a case out there that doesn't have merits. There definitely is a case here and there, but just to say the whole system is just written with meritless cases is, I think, an unfairness to the Ontario people who benefit from this system Mm -hmm. and to this system that's been functioning for decades uh, and getting better and better. And hopefully this will be just a bump in the road. Mm. John, that that article you wrote, I think it was in the Western Journal of Legal Studies, is that right? 2014 or so? Among others, yeah, we, we published it at lots of legal conferences and mm-hmm. into various formats. Yeah, yeah. Is it twenty fourteen or twenty eleven? I can't remember. It's it's early the Western teens. publication was twenty fourteen. Right. Okay. Um, it's gone into, as I say, lots of uh, CLE uh, presentations at other times before and after that. Yeah, just so people can look it up if they want to. Great. Well, uh, thank you again, both of you, for coming on the show. Thank you for your time and thanks for a really interesting discussion. And uh, have a great day. Thanks for having us, Suzanne. Thanks for having us. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. 
Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins. And the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.